Well, I don't think robots are going to be able to do coffered ceilings anytime soon. Also, I mean, it's just a great way to make a living. Um, I'm proud of the living, you know, I've been able to make for my family. I know a lot of other guys out there are the same. It's been, it's been a good way to get up every day and, and do something meaningful that adds value to the world. And for me, teaching that so that I can shorten somebody else's learning curve is a, a very ultimately fulfilling thing for me. I, idealistically, in a perfect world, we could just take the finances out of the equation and we would just be these artisans that worked with our hands, building awesome stuff all day and the world would be peachy. I think anybody that you ask who, who openly shares their trade knowledge will say it hasn't hurt them at all. And what actually happens is it makes you a lot better because you develop relationships with other skilled tradesmen and, and you're building each other up. That's my guest today, Spencer Lewis. And today we're going to talk about not only his amazing YouTube channel, but what it's like to be a tradesman who becomes their own boss as a subcontractor. Of course, many of you are here today because you know who he is already, but you might not know me. I'm Mike Kenoki. I own and operate Straight Ahead Construction in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm a builder and a recovered remodeler. And I started this podcast about a year ago that's now up to 80 episodes and 40 guests, plus a lot of topical stuff about how to work a contracting business. And before we continue on with the sound bites summarizing the show, I want to ask that favor again. Snap a screenshot of the pod that you're listening to that day, whichever one it is, on your computer screen, your dashboard of your truck, post it to Instagram stories or a post and tag me. If you enjoy this content, please do that and help spread the word. What do you look for in a general contractor from your perspective? That's a great question. I had a lot of fear and just uh, limiting beliefs. You know, the confidence that I have now, very afraid of failing. Would I be able to financially make it? You know, there is such a need for, for quality work. And if you if you do good work with integrity, I mean, I, I think you're going to be fine. Stuff's paid for, and I'm coming to the realization that my body is only going to physically do this work for so long. And uh, also, I think right now we are in an unprecedented time that none of us have experienced. Basically, if you look at my books at the end of the year, 99% of the money that comes into my business is from labor. I'm not an advocate of the, the hustle and grind mentality over a long, long period of time. But I do think if you are going to start in the trades, you've got to be ready to work hard. And, you know, they don't drive themselves. So they hire a driver to, to drive them to and from the job site. So that was my first job was uh, driving an Amish crew and then working with them. Um, it'll make a man out of you really fast. <laughs> if you're, if you have that hustle mindset that a lot of guys have where they're continuing to work that 70 or 80 hours a week and they're not paying themselves a good wage, that's where you, you're the hamster on the wheel. You know, you, that's what we don't want. If you're maxing out your retirement accounts and you're still paying a good amount of taxes, 
that's a very healthy sign for your business. All that money that you would have spent on these payments, that's where you start chucking that into retirement accounts mm-hmm. um, where you really start building some wealth. You've got to pay your dues, but you're strategically looking forward on how the skills that you are learning today are going to pay you dividends in the years to come. So whenever I started the YouTube channel, I wanted to teach everybody, but even in the back of my mind, I had the idea that for myself, I could even use that for my own potential employees, but margin really applies to your finances, your time, um, your, your, your mental capacity to take on more. I look at it, there's two different mindsets. There's an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset says I have to protect everything and I can't, uh, for me to prosper, somebody else has to not prosper. And, and the abundance mindset says I can share everything and we can all prosper. You know, at a base level, managing that stress that we experience in the business, that's kind of like step one. But then probably most of us have had things that have come along in life that have uh, been like getting hit by a bus from the side. And, and that's where you really have to learn to manage your mental health. And no. probably the biggest thing, and you would know this as a builder, like if you want to talk about something that really adds to the stress is if you know a builder house has a house that is ready for you and you cannot get there. Definitely. As soon as you think you have it all figured out, that's where the trouble usually starts. I, I don't have the answers. If it was up to me and I wanted to like create this perfect superhuman construction tradesman, the first thing I would do is push them to their absolute limits on what they think uh, they can do mentally and physically. That whole aspect of delayed gratification in the trades, I can't emphasize that enough for young people. You, you're going to have to put your time in to learn these skills and you're probably not going to see a huge payoff right away. If you're a go-getter, there is so much potential and opportunity in the trades, especially if you want to start a business. And there are those guys out there for sure. They're, they're unicorns. They're rare, but they are there. Look at how hard it is for us to come up through the trades and acquire the knowledge and skills that we need to actually be able to earn a decent living in the trades. And I feel like we are just reinventing the wheel over and over again with each person. The core focus that you should really be focused on is how do I create value and then how do I leverage that value? My next guest is a Finnish carpenter and YouTube channel host, where he shares his craft and the tools he's used to learn how to run his subcontracting business. He's also sent a rip from a table saw through a window. So have I. The difference is he walks his viewers through the reason for the mistake while I was wildly embarrassed and ashamed of myself as a young man. But we all make mistakes and talking about mistakes helps us grow. Let me introduce Spencer Lewis of Lewis Carpentry out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
and Insider Carpentry on both Instagram and YouTube. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Uh, another thing I relate to with your IG content is working alone. Uh, you, you, I've seen you pull off some pretty cool stuff there. Um, and that sense of accomplishment when you pull off a, an installation solo is pretty incredible. Uh, and, and though on most of yours, I would have called a buddy to help me lift it, but you're, you're doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's how I've rolled, uh, the whole way through since I started in business. Um, I'm, I'm definitely an introvert. And so I, I kind of just enjoy being working alone and, uh, the, the challenge of finding somebody to help just whenever you need an extra set of hands is usually I can figure it out how to do it myself faster and easier. So that's just kind of how I've rolled. That is true. That extra set of hands is hard to find. And then, and then often you're expecting them to have some level of understanding that you have. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing that most people, I get a lot of flack for that. Uh, a lot of people are very fast to jump to the conclusion that, oh, it'd be so much easier with another set of hands. And there's a lot of times where I would feel much safer doing it myself and kind of figuring out a way to do it myself than having uh, an inexperienced set of hands on the other end of something heavy. Um, a lot of bad things can happen. And I've, I've had that happen over the course of my career when I was working with other people. So. Um, I, I, in general, I may do some unorthodox things, but usually it's done pretty safely. Yeah, it looks so. And, and the, watching the install videos is pretty neat. Um, challenging stuff. And, and I appreciate too, that you're working alone and you're sharing mistakes that you've made. Uh, you don't have to do that, but, but that is so helpful to pe for people to understand that we, we do make mistakes and that you just have to figure out how, why you did it, why that happened. Yep. Yeah. For me, most of the time, the mistakes happen right after a period of uh, massive overconfidence. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that's usually the way it works. You, you think you're on top of the world and then out of nowhere, you realize you really messed something up. No doubt. That's a, it's that self-observation is vital, right? For growth. Um, so you're, you're, you're got your trade pretty dialed in. Um, you're 34, but what about being a trade contractor? Are you good at business? I think I am. Um, I, I, I would say so. Um, by a lot of people's standards, uh, the, the definition of massively scaling up a business, maybe not, but I think um, for definitely for growing a, a niche subcontracting business, I feel like I've been, been pretty blessed and it's gone pretty well, but it definitely hasn't been without its struggles, that's for sure. But uh, where, where it's at today, I'm, I'm pretty proud of where I'm at. And do you, do you sub out a lot to GCs or, or do a bunch of solo work or how's that go? So I'd consider myself just strictly a subcontracting business uh, for, man, it's been at least five years. I haven't taken anything except work from builders uh, mm -hmm. and really just a select few builders at that. 
Uh, the majority of my work comes from just one builder that I've worked for uh, for several years. We've got a great relationship. Um, so most of the high-end custom homes that people see me working on would be for that particular builder. Um, and then I kind of supplement uh, as needed with a, a couple other good builders as well. And, and do you have, this is more nerdy basics, but like, do you have work agreements with them? No, <laughs> that's the tricky thing about being a subcontractor, um, especially when you're starting out. Now, I guess, what do you mean by a work agreement? I mean, an agreement between you and the general that says, I'll do this work for this much money. Um, my, for instance, my insurance company wants me to have work agreements. I've never mm -hmm. really, I've not, I haven't done uh, that many of them, but they're really cracking down on me because I don't have employees anymore. And I, and I sub out tons of work. I still manage a lot of projects and they're going, how's this work being done? So they want to know exactly what my subs are doing. Um, so I have like loose, agreements i don't have one for every project but basically i have one sign that says you know you're responsible for what you're responsible for and i'm responsible for what i am just to keep them happy to keep mm -hmm. the insurance company happy yeah no that's huge and i i in that sense yes i do have work agreements in that i i send detailed estimates or quotes bids whatever you want to call it before i ever step foot on the job um there will occasionally be times where I will do work without having an estimate created. Uh, but I, even, even for builders that I have a good relationship with, I don't like doing that um, just because if there would be some kind of a miscommunication or they would have thought that the work should have been done for less, then, then you're in a bad situation. I'd much rather give the price on the front end. They know what it is. I know what it is. And then we're all on the same page. So in the new construction business, um, I think that's that's really important to have that communication on the front end. I mean, unless you're doing production work where you just have kind of a set square foot price that you're you're just rolling from house to house really quickly, then I could see maybe not having that. But on higher end custom homes. For the builder and their client, it's usually pretty important to have all those details dialed in financially beforehand. Yeah, having those contracts in place is super important. And uh, like where I live, a lot of the GCs have employees who are doing a lot of the, who are doing a, a fair amount of all of the work. But, but you said where you are, it's all, it's all pretty much GCs subbing everything. If, if uh, it's in the new construction realm, I don't see hardly any builders self-performing any work anymore. Uh, they, they're all using niche subcontracting trades, um, concrete framing, siding, plumbing, electrical painting, all the, every, every different trade has a, a different subcontractor. And then they may have like a laborer on staff who kind of takes care of that in between stuff might might happen but it's all subcontracted mm -hmm. um 
it's a little different. I know in like, I feel like especially some of the bigger cities, some of the other subcontractors I know, like talking about that work agreement, they would send a more formal contract that would get signed before they would uh, do any work and that would be more normal. But I'm still, even though I work in a city, it's still got kind of that small town Midwest vibe where you trust people and, and mm. you do what you say you're going to do. And for the most part, the key is communicating on the front end, but then you, you trust the, the contractor, the contractor trusts you. And that, that usually works out pretty well, especially if you've got any kind of a longstanding relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and it varies just state to state, right? I, our state's cracking down on, on labor and, um, and workman's comp to make sure that people are insured. Cause a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of loopholes you can fly through, you know, and to make it a little less expensive for yourself, but a lot more dangerous for anybody working for you. Yeah. Well, I know like I'm, I'm worker workman's comp exempt as a owner operator. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that's something it's, uh, a calculated risk. I guess you could say, but I, I don't carry it on myself. Do you have healthcare in general? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that should cover you. It's uh... yeah. <clears throat> well, and, and I, to me, the, the workman's comp is okay. I, I hurt myself and now I'm off work for a period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be getting that, whatever it is, that 50% check of what I would normally make coming if I break my leg or whatever. But if you're in a financial position to take care of yourself, you're, you're kind of self-insuring, I guess, creating your own safety Mm -hmm. net. So it's just, I'm not saying that anybody else should do that, but I think that's pretty common for people like myself in my area to claim that exemption from working up. What do you look for in a general contractor from your perspective that you're going to work for? That's a great question. Um, Definitely trust. I need to, you know, have confidence that uh, if I'm going to do the work that I'm going to get paid for it. And that really comes down to trusting that on their end, they're going to communicate clearly with the homeowner. The pricing is approved. Um, and just communication is, is really key. Um, having an organized job site is huge. The easier they make it for me just to get there, um, have everything there, you know, so that I can do my job. And then um, clear specs are huge, especially on the high-end custom homes. If you miss a detail, that could mean ripping out a week's worth of work, you know, so having all that stuff in line. But uh, the, the main guy I work for, you know, if I would uh, rate that relationship on a scale of one to 10, it would probably be a 12. Um, we've worked together for several years and I have been with him longer than any of his employees. Um, we've seen a lot of trials, struggles, worked through a lot of stuff. And uh, there's just a, a good relationship with a lot of trust us there so i mean that's if i was to to tell anyone to strive for something that's the kind of relationship you want to strive for 
as a subcontractor builder relationship. I, I like those qualities you pointed out. I like to think that I have those for, for my subs that I have a 12 relationship with as well. Uh, and yeah. those, and, and um, the clear specs, you know, have you ever miscommunicated? Yes. Thankfully, <laughs> nothing, um, nothing like huge, nothing where uh, I really like lost my shirt or anything like that. One thing you do develop after you're in business for a while is you kind of get that, uh, that sixth sense of when something is about to go wrong. And it's important whenever you get that feeling in your gut that says, this might not be right. I need mm. to double check this and confirm it. You better do that because everyone makes mistakes. And even a builder with really good specs can still, I mean, on a, on a $2 million custom home, there are so many selections. It's very possible that something could get, uh, you know, specced wrong or get two different specs because something got changed by the homeowner at some point and it didn't get transferred over. But uh, builder trend is huge. Um, having all that stuff in builder trend. Whenever I start a job, like with my main builder, I can log on to builder trend and literally everything that I need is right there. So uh, that's really key. And then as we're, we're always uh, growing as builders in all capacities and, and you, you've been at this since you were 16, you said, yep. Um, driving truck for van, driving, <laughs> driving a van. I, I started out, uh, around where I live. We've got a lot of Amish, um, a huge part of the population and a lot of the trade work is performed by Amish and you know they don't drive themselves so they hire a driver to to drive them to and from the job site so that was my first job was uh driving an Amish crew and then working with them um it'll make a man out of you really fast <laughs> mm -hmm. it was and then, some hard hard work and then uh you worked for them for a while. When did you first go into business for yourself? Um, I would have been about 24 years old, 25 years old. Uh, I had worked in the trades that, that whole period from 16 to 25. Basically, I never made a respectable wage at all. Um, whenever I gave my notice, to my, my employer at that point in time that I was going to go on my own. I was making $13 and 50 cents an hour. Um, so for me, it wasn't, I always wanted to own my own business, but it wasn't like even a choice. It was a matter of almost survival. Uh, I had to, to make something happen because the, uh, the wages that, uh, I was getting paid were just not, not going to cut it to raise a family with. And what were the, what was the most challenging part of stepping out on your own? Um, I think, you know, looking back at that period of time, I had a lot of fear and just uh, limiting beliefs. You know, the confidence that I have now compared to 
the guy I was at, at 25 years old, you know, I was very afraid of failing. Would I be able to financially make it? Um, so that was the, the big thing is I just didn't know if I could make it at that point. So, so the biggest hurdle was overcoming that, but, uh, looking back, it was absolutely silly to even begin to think that I, I wasn't going to make it because, you know, there is such a need for, for quality work. And if you, if you do good work with integrity, I mean, I I think you're going to be fine. And I want to, I want to say that again, for people in the back, if you do good work, there is room for you in all the trades right now. There's space. There's, there's, there's niches that need to be filled. Yeah. There's a huge, huge need. You talk to any builder, you know, who, you know, like yourself is trying to subcontract out work, find uh, capable hands to, to do stuff. And uh, you'll hear almost across the board that it's a huge struggle finding guys. Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. We are. We are seeking the eager and up and coming subcontractors who who are hungry for work and money. You know, we're yep. looking, we're looking all the time. Um, okay. So these last few years, what have been like your formative lessons? You know, cause, cause we do grow constantly. We we're always experiencing personal growth. Um, and as a businessman, you, you have these epiphanies where you go, wait, I've been doing it like this for so long and I could have saved so much time. If I had realized this, you know, what did, what are a couple formative things the last couple of years? Um, I would say my mind immediately went to more of the financial aspect of the business, not so much the hands-on skilled stuff, but I think we go through phases in business. Um, you know, you get, you're in that, that hungry stage stage when you start a business where you're just trying to survive, you're trying to build up your tools, um, pay off any debt, stuff like that. Um, I'd say I'm in the phase now where all that stuff's done, stuff's paid for, and I'm coming to the realization that my body is only going to physically do this work for so long. And uh, also the the financial aspect that I want to be um, financially secure, I'm, I'm much more focused on saving for retirement than I am for buying the next tool at this point in my career. So those are, that's, that's kind of my focus right now in this stage is kind of playing the long game, I guess. That's excellent advice and and an excellent thing to realize. I, I was a little bit late to focusing on that, but uh, that was my advice when I was on the bread to build podcast is okay. As retire. Yep. That should ultimately, and I don't know, retiring is going to look different for everybody. I don't see like stopping something. I all I will always have to keep my hands busy, but you know I want to be at a, a very comfortable place. Uh, the joy of working with my hands is a hundred percent, and there's yeah. not like that extra stress in the background. And to me, the worst thing would be to have a body that's failing and having to go to work because you financially have to. Um, you know, once you know, obviously I could hurt myself right now. And that, that'd be a little bit different story, but um, you just want to look ahead and realize that it's not always going to feel good to lift these heavy beams up over my head all day long. 
And uh, I want to be able to do that because I want to, not because I have to. 100%. And I am 48 and I feel things a lot more than I used to. Uh, I still love working on my body, but it's not what it was. And I've seen, I've seen, you've seen it older guys that are still going. And yeah, my dad is a, uh, uh, spent his life in the trades. He's coming up on 60 and just spent a few months off work with a rotator cuff after rotator cuff surgery. And, you know, you get to that point where just about everything starts going bad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that's very real to me. Um, like you said, I see it all around and other, other subs that I interact with. And, um, I, I hope I can stay healthy and, and work physically for a long time, but I'm, I'm very strategic and realizing that that might not be reality. So what's the most challenging part of being a subcontractor today compared to let's say three years ago? Today, definitely, it's the fact that the economy has been so good over these last few years that the other subcontractors uh, around you have been able to be extremely sloppy. Um, and it's really tied the builder's hands and their ability to, I don't know what you want to call it, discipline subcontractors because they can just go somewhere else and um, get more work. You know, no one's worried about not having work. So you can do really sloppy work. Um, and then, you know, the builder might end up losing the subcontractor and not being able to meet their labor needs. So the definitely the challenging thing over these last few years has just been the, the amount of garbage that <laughs> shoddy subcontractors have been able to get away with and then that translates into the other subcontractors around them having to pick up their slack so it's a lot of the can getting kicked down the road that can get pretty frustrating that's a tough situation uh i'm i am very fortunate to have consistent good subs excellent subs for my work but now do you feel like as a sub, there's new challenges in terms of pricing your work because of the uh, valuation of, of our supplies being like commodities. You know, the game has changed, I feel like. Yeah, I think right now we are in an unprecedented time that none of us have experienced um, because of the inflation aspect. Uh, of what we're experiencing in the trades, you got the supply issues, you know, for, for you guys who are bidding jobs, labor and materials, um, you've had the supply issue has been huge rising costs on that stuff. But then from someone like me, a lot of us are labor only. Well, how do you price your labor in this market? Hmm. Because like I, I've had a longstanding price list that I've, you know, pretty well dialed in on what I charge for my work. But then whenever you start looking at inflation being at 8% over the course of, you know, a couple of years, and it's probably in reality higher than that. Okay. Well, we need to raise our prices then, but then that becomes an issue. How much? And then does that jeopardize your relationship with builders? Um, so that's a really, 
uh, tough thing to navigate right now. And uh, I have a bad feeling that it's hurting a lot of us much more than we realize. Uh, I heard the analogy. It's kind of like carbon monoxide in the room. Mm. You're you're dying, but you don't know that you are uh, because wages are rising. You know what we're being paid or even let's just look at the employee labor pool. Wages are rising, but the costs of living are rising. The costs of business are rising higher than wages are rising. So it's we've got this really weird dynamic going on that I, I think it's more challenging than any of us actually realize. It's absolutely a challenge. And, and are you, so you're, when you're operating, you're only, your supply, your materials are there. Correct. The builder buys all the materials. I'm labor only. I might have a small portion on my estimate for consumables, but as far as uh, mm-hmm. the bulk Basically, if you look at my books at the end of the year, 99% of the money that comes into my business is from labor. What would be your advice to any tradesperson who wants to start their own gig today? Um, I would say, first off, you're going to have to hustle for it. Um, look around. If Let's just say you're going to enter the marketplace. You're going to take a survey of who's around you and you're going to see guys who have been doing it longer than you have uh, guys who have their tools and equipment paid for um, and, and just have more experience. So how do you overcome that? Uh, I think the answer for all of us is that we just simply work harder and uh, to learn as quickly as we can to get financially ahead. So I'm not an advocate of the, the hustle and grind mentality over a long, long period of time. But I do think if you are going to start in the trades, you've got to be ready to work hard for at least a few years um, to to, uh, strategically build yourself up. Uh, But then also you need to keep in mind that you got to pay yourself eventually. Um, I took a, a very modest wage. I always paid myself but I paid myself a modest wage whenever I started my business so that I could strategically put more money into tools and equipment that would give me a good rate of return on my investment. Uh, but, but where I think a lot of trade contractors fall short then is they never end up paying themselves back for that sacrifice time then. And a lot of businesses never pay the owner the kind of wage that they should be paid based off the work that they're actually doing as a business owner. Um, So be ready to hustle, but hustle intelligently and strategically to uh, get yourself in a good financial position. I got a couple things that come out of that. Um, What does it mean when you say hustle and grind? You're an advocate for for doing the hustle and grind for a few years, but not for the long run. So going back to, okay, you're starting out and let's say, let's just use myself as a trim subcontractor. For example, uh, my competition is other trim subcontractors. So if they're, most of them have been in business for a period of time, they're not working, you know, a ton. They're, you know, 40, 50 hour weeks, whatever that, that may be. So how do I gain an advantage on them if I'm just starting out? 
in order to get better tools that are going to make me more efficient, so on and so forth, put my business in a better financial position so that in a downturn, I have cash where maybe they don't, which is going to give me an edge. The answer to that in those first years, I think, is you work harder, meaning you put in more hours so that you can raise your hourly rate as, as to what you can earn. So you might start out where you're earning $40 an hour. Well then, okay, so work instead of a 40 hour week, work a 60 hour week. Now you take that money from those extra 20 hours, put it into tools that are going to make you more efficient. Now the next year you went from 40 dollars an hour to you're earning $60 an hour because you're more efficient. And you do that for, I think it just takes a couple years, two, three years, and you're going to be in a good position. And then that's where you kind of cross that threshold to where you're paying yourself. You should start to pay yourself the wage that you, you really should be getting. And, and, and now your business, hopefully, I'm not an advocate of debt at all. Get your stuff paid off and get a cash reserve. Um, so in, in a matter of, I would say, three to five years, you can get your business in a really good position. But if you're, if you have that hustle mindset that a lot of guys have, where they're continuing to work that 70 or 80 hours a week, and they're not paying themselves a good wage, that's where you, you're the hamster on the wheel. You know, you, that's what we don't want. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things coming out of here. Uh, I really respect that idea of work those extra hours at the beginning for the tools, for the things you need. I went from getting paid $40 an hour by a contractor to making almost nothing when I worked for myself and, and ground. <laughs> and just like, mm -hmm. you know, there's some, there's some times when you, if you divide the the money by the hour the hours by the money the hour, money by the hours you're like oh okay I don't want to work at, at McDonald's don't, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't I don't want to look at this right now but but yeah. one of the things I think one of the one of the really valuable things you pointed out is that we have to pay ourselves and you can't so you have to run it like a business and you can't just look at your bank balance and be like I'm doing all right you mm -hmm. can't you can't and you can't look at you can't look at the difference between the beginning of the year and the end of the year as that profit is like your, your wage, mm -hmm. you, what you made. It's not, it's what the company made and you have to pay yourself out of it. Right. Yeah. Whenever I, my first few years in business on my profit and loss statement, I always kept my salary all the way at the bottom of my profit and loss statement, which is very deceiving because then it makes you look like you're doing a lot better than you are, number one. Um, so one of the things I would say, I moved my salary up to a cost of goods sold, mm -hmm. which is higher up on the profit and loss statement, which is indicating that if I had to pay somebody else to do my job, this is what it would cost the company. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to actually do in a small trade business because we're wearing so many different hats. Absolutely. The reality is if you're paying yourself $60,000 a year, that's not anywhere close to an accurate depiction of what it would take to replace you. So 
we have to be careful because we can screw up our own books by not paying ourselves a salary that that's correct and then not having it in the right place whenever we're analyzing our business. So uh, that that's really big. You got to, whether you're doing it, you know, like for myself, I'm an LLC filing as an S corp. So I take a base salary because I don't want to pay any more taxes on that than I have to. And then I take the rest in a distribution, but I still have to be honest whenever I look at my books and say, okay, this is what I'm taking as a salary. And then this is what I'm taking as a distribution, what's left. And then the ultimate test is what are you actually paying in taxes at the end of the year? Because if you're not paying any taxes, you didn't make a profit. And the more taxes you're paying, now you got to take that with a grain of salt because you don't want to be stupid and pay taxes that you don't have to pay. But if you're maxing out your retirement accounts and you're still paying a good amount of taxes, that's a very healthy sign for your business. I also like that you pointed out getting out of debt because mm-hmm. we carry way too much debt as, as builders. And that adds so much to stress what you have to put out at the end of the month. It's really stressful. And I'm, I'm, I am debt free. So, um, it's the way to be, it's the way to be. It, it, it feels good. And, and when, when, if things slow down or you want to take a break, you don't stress as much. I'm, I'm not against debt. You know, there's a lot of businesses where if you're, you can't hardly run the business if you're not going to have debt, but for a small trade business, I think it's important look at what is the ROI on that money that you're spending and do you, are you actually getting a return on your investment and do you need to spend that money? Yeah. And for me, I've been in business uh, going on nine years now for myself. There's honestly, there's just not anything I really need. So (laughs) for me, like even going out and buying a new work vehicle or, or something like that to take out loans on that, those I'm just adding liabilities to my business. Um, whereas then whenever you are, whenever you're debt free, all that money that you would have spent on these payments, that's where you start chucking that into retirement accounts, mm-hmm. um, where you really start building some wealth. What do you say when you hear guys my age say all young people are lazy? I'm 48. Spencer is 34. This is coming up all the time right now. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think, you know, we are a more prosperous society in America than we've ever been in world history. Um, and there's been more available to us than any other time in history. And I think that that has made us soft in, in general. Um, so I, I'm not going to argue with that. I, I look back at my beginnings, starting out working on an Amish construction crew was the best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, I still, to this day, remember my first day on a construction crew, we were tearing off a roof in the summer heat. And I thought to myself, I thought, I can't do this. You know, I was a six, 16 years old, working with these men and I was a boy, you know, I, I 
did not, I, I had not been broken in yet. And, mm. uh, I, you know, I remember that, but the thing is you do that. And, uh, I compare it kind of to that Navy seal hell week thing where you get pushed to your limits and then you realize it's not that bad and you can do a lot more than you thought, but how many young guys are actually getting to experience that? The truth is probably not, not very many. And I think that that contributes to kind of that laziness mindset, but I see it on job sites. I see the young guys, especially in the mechanical trades, they're, they're not working. They're, they're just trying to milk the clock and um, not, not saying that they're all like that, but I see that constantly. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, It's a real thing, but for me, you know, like I said earlier, I came into it and it was a matter of survival. You know, I kind of, I landed in the, the construction trades. I got married whenever I was 21 years old. So I had to figure it out and um, being lazy here in the Midwest on a construction crew is not the ticket to success, you know? So you've got to learn to work hard and get stuff done. So, you know, it was a trial by fire kind of thing for me. And I, I don't have the answers. If it was up to me and I wanted to like create this perfect superhuman construction tradesman, the first thing I would do is push them to their absolute limits on what they think uh, they can do mentally and physically. Um, (laughs) But most young people don't want to experience that right off the bat. Uh, That's an interesting observation. You know, I'm trying, you know, I don't want to condemn the next generation or the generation below them. I don't want to condemn them saying they're lazy. Uh, I've struggled as a business owner when I had employees. Um, and I'm all optimistic that that unicorn will appear. Uh-huh. But that mental trap is probably me seeing myself. And like you seeing yourself at 16, you learn quick that if you work hard, you make money and, you're, and, and you make everyone happy. Mm-hmm. And I was a hardworking kid. And I soon realized that I was invincible. And now that I'm getting older, I realize I'm definitely invincible. <laughs> but, but as a young, as a, as a kid, I realized I could do anything. I could work as long as I needed to. And, and the more I worked, the more I made money. But, but your observation that, that people have gotten soft uh, is interesting because we have, as a society, gotten soft. So it's the parents. I mean... I mean, when I, I was a kid, when yeah. I was a kid, my te- if my teacher said I was a bad kid, I was afraid of, mm-hmm. to go home. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you were like, oh, like there's going to be trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I got yelled at at school today. The teacher and your parents are like on the same level and now they're not right. You're the kid and the parents are on the level and the teacher is the bad person. Yeah. Well, there was such a. uh like even going back to starting on a, an Amish construction crew, there was so much shame associated with being lazy. Mm. Like you, you didn't want to be that guy. Um, and now I see it's almost like our, our society, often there's this mindset coming through where 
doing the least amount of work possible is good. And I think that's human mm. nature to a degree. Um, but one, one of the other things I thought of with going back to the young people that I know helped me a lot is being passionate about what you're doing makes a huge difference. If you're mentally really engaged in learning and you're loving it, then you're, you're going to work hard. You're going to try to learn as fast as possible. Mm. And the money is not going to be important. And that whole aspect of delayed gratification in the trades, I can't emphasize that enough for young people. You, you're going to have to put your time in to learn these skills and you're probably not going to see a huge payoff right away, but it can be there further down the road, but you got to put your time in first. Um, and I think if you're passionate about what you're doing, it makes it 10 times easier, you know, to put that work in. Whereas if you're just, somebody tells a young kid, Hey, you should go into the trades because the world needs tradesmen and they're not really passionate about it. It's probably going to be a harder road. That's a really good point too. And, and, uh, I was asked to talk to some high school kids and I'm one, I'm, I'm trying to come up with an approach that doesn't sound like all the things people said to me when I was a kid that turned me off. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in high school, adults sound like the do in, in the peanuts, you know, in the cartoon. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, you, you're just like, whatever, 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 whatever in your head. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know, why are you talking to me? Yep. You know, I'm 17 years old and I got other things I'd rather be doing. And I think it's, I think it's really important to ask a kid, what do you want? But, but make sure that it's verified for them that whatever you think about trades versus college they need to know it's the same it's it's okay to pick one or the other whatever's right for them yeah because a lot of kids will say oh i, I should go to college because you know that's what they told me to do and and meanwhile there are a lot of people telling them to go into trades but but there's still some like denigration and negativity towards the trades Hey, I say with that, that's fine because it makes it more of an advantage to us who are in the trades. I mean, it in, in a way, it it's keeping a lot of good people out of the trades, which makes it a lot easier to be in the trades. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's the reality of it. If you're a go-getter, there is so much potential and opportunity in the trades, especially if you want to start a business. Um, there's so much of a need and in a, and in a lot of ways, there's a lot of bad businesses out there, which makes it really easy to come in and compete if you're willing to bring value to the table. So there's a ton of opportunity in the trades. Here's the thing about all this is that we are pushing. We're like, okay, we need a, we need a new labor force. We need to build the labor force. And we're all talking about it. How are we going to get people to actually listen to this message? Like, if you're not interested in trade, you're not going to listen to this podcast. Actually, who's going to listen to a podcast with, you know, carpenters talking to each other or mm -hmm. 
you know, this is a very unique situation. So the message, I don't know how the message is going to get to people, you know, high school programs. That's, that's, that's really the forefront of everything right now is, is getting to people while they're, while they're in a system that they have to be involved in. Yeah. But, but beyond that, I don't know where we go. Well, this is, you're preaching to the choir even. So the interesting thing is like with Instagram and YouTube, I have analytics where I can see the age demographics of who actually watches my videos. And to me, I like, I want to be making videos for those guys in the, the 18 years old to 30 years old age range. Yeah. That's the least watched demographic of my YouTube channel. Okay. So a million views per month and that's <laughs> it's not reaching the right people and i i've had conversations about this and part of it is i think it takes a while for people especially young men to mature and they're not really interested in their career a lot of times until you know they have to be in life so you're you're coming up on that late 20s early 30s age group um but yeah, I, I hear you, but I, I try and make content that I would have wanted to consume when I was younger. So I'm making content for mm. the 20 year old version of me, you know, that, <clears throat> that type of thing. And there are those guys out there for sure. They're, they're unicorns, they're rare, but they are there. Um, but it just kind of is what it is. <laughs> I, I feel you there. I ask the same questions and, and it bugs me too. But for whatever reason, um, younger guys don't seem to get really interested and engaged with, with this conversation we're having. couple things here. Uh, I'm guessing that the demographic top of the curve is the age group between your age and my age. Yep, that 35... <laughs> That, that 35 and, to 45 is pretty high. And actually, you know, the 45 to 55 is really high as well. Uh -huh. So, and I have a lot of guys who are on the tail end of their career. I mean, guys in their sixties who, who watch a lot of my videos and comment a lot who are still actively learning. And that always impresses me uh, whenever those guys chime in too. Well, it's always good to, it's good for younger people to see that older guys, older men and women are always learning. For sure. Because we are always learning. And, and then to go back to what you were saying, that you're creating content for the 20 year old self. That's why I have this podcast. And that's, that's why I wrote a book. Because, because the book on how to start a contracting business doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and this information that we're putting out there did not exist for me in any way. When I was starting out, it was like being in a cave because I live in a remote place and there was, you know, internet wasn't really a thing yet. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't what it is now. We're all like, oh, what is this? <laughs> you know? So uh, you either had books and a lot of guessing. Yeah. And, no, I and, bought, I bought the books. I mean, yeah. I was such a weird, weird youth. Like I bought books, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. I was buying the books on framing and everything. And 
for me, you know, the age I was, the online forums were huge mm. at, at that point in time. It was pretty popular and you could learn a lot on, on the online forums. And then that, you know, over the last decade really moved into Instagram. But the thing I hate to see with Instagram now is, you know, they changed up the platform and algorithm to the point where it's so much more about mindless entertainment now that the the trade community and the amount of guys that were participating a few years ago, it's it's almost nothing now compared to what it was. Uh, so I, I hate to see that, but hopefully something else pops up that kind of um, reinfuses the community aspect in the trades again. But I have hated to see kind of the decline on Instagram just with the changes on the platform. It's really what you see is the stuff that they know is most likely to suck you in and start you down that rabbit hole yeah. instead of, you know, the the community stuff, the trade oriented stuff, the educational stuff that you that that would be better. Um, but that's their business. Uh, they know what they're doing really, really well. Why do skilled trades matter? Well, I don't think robots are going to be able to do coffered ceilings anytime soon. So for one, I think that uh, there will con there will be continue to be a lot of the labor force that'll be replaced by automation, but I don't see that happening in the housing market very easily. So if we want quality built homes, we're going to have to have people who can build quality homes. Um, that's a, that's just at a real base level, um, uh, kind of at a deeper level. I think, uh, a lot of us are gifted with the ability to work with our hands. Um, I would hate to just sit behind a desk all day long. Uh, I, I love working with my hands. So for a lot of people, that's the trades are a great way to be able to use your gifts to, to in a really satisfying, fulfilling way. So that's another aspect that the trades are important. Um, but also, I mean, it's just a great way to make a living. Um, I'm proud of the living, you know, I've been able to make for my family. I know a lot of other guys out there are the same. It's been, it's been a good way to get up every day and, and do something meaningful that adds value to the world. And then what do you value most? I think for me, I've, I've always been a guy who, who has a, who has searched for what is the most meaningful thing that I can do with my life. That's why I started the insider carpentry, you know, YouTube channel and uh, wanted to teach other people because I know the struggle that it is to get, to get going. Um, and for me teaching that so that I can shorten somebody else's learning curve is a, a very ultimately fulfilling thing for me. And who would, if you could name a, one mentor, who would, who would you say your mentor was? Oh, hands down. Uh, that would be my good friend, Justin. Uh, a lot of people would know him as Chicago Carpenter on Instagram. Um, we go way back to the internet forum days um, and he, whenever I was starting out, he had been, you know, in trim, some cut in trim subcontracting for 
several years at least before I was. So he was always ahead of me. And uh, he, he really was the person who lit the spark for me to get really passionate about production trim work and um, how fast can I do this? How efficiently can I do this? And um, I learned a ton from him. So definitely he would be the one guy I would say. I know we kind of gone through a lot of the stuff around trades, but what would you say to someone who is considering entering trades? I just want to preface this with, I've had a lot of people on the show who came into trades after being in a profession. Uh, So I'm not just talking about what we call the next generation. I'm talking about anybody who's thinking about coming into trades. I think, you know, I idealistically in a perfect world, we could just take the finances out of the equation and we would just be these artisans that work with our hands, building awesome stuff all day and, the world would be peachy. But if we take more of a realistic view, you know, if I was to give advice to someone coming into the trades, the, the concept of creating value is huge. Whether you're an employee or you're in a business, the core focus that you should really be focused on is how do I create value? And then how do I leverage that value? And the, the problem that we see a lot today is we, with the youth, there is such a short attention span. They all want to get to that, that mindset of, well, I'm taking this job as an HVAC tech and HVAC tech gets paid 90 grand a year, or whatever it may be. I'm starting. That's what I should get paid. Well, if you haven't done anything to learn to create value, you really don't deserve that wage. And, and I think the trades, we live in reality a lot more than maybe some other professions. So if you're not happy with what your wage is, you have to ask yourself, what can I do to create more value and what can I do to leverage that value? So the hardest period of time that we have in the trades is that initial apprentice stage because we're learning a ton we're growing our skills, but usually we don't reap the financial benefits of that until later in life. And you do have to be patient starting out. You got to put in your time. You got to pay your dues. That isn't to say that you just, you know, take it on the chin from everybody, but you realize you're, you've got to pay your dues, but you're strategically looking forward on how the skills that you are learning today are going to pay you dividends in the years to come. So learn to see what does the market need? Where can I create value? Learn those skills, create that product, create that service, and then take it to the market. And you can do that whether you're an employee or you go into your into business for yourself. Uh, as an employee, for example, as a carpenter, you could learn the skills of a high-end finished carpenter, and you're going to reach a cap. You're only going to be able to earn so much as an employee. But then if you have the ability to uh, be a lead carpenter and manage three apprentices under you, you've leveraged your ability and you're going to be worth a lot more to, to your boss. 
So that's a way that you can um, increase your income potential. But then I'm, I'm always an advocate. If someone has the ability and is leaning towards starting their business, that's going to be a great path to reap the most benefit for your hard work in the trades. Um, so I, I think if you, if you have an inkling to go into business for yourself, it's very hard. It's very demanding, but that's probably going to be where you're going to get the best return on your investment. Hey, now let's return to your YouTube channel for a second. Yep. At the beginning of the pod, I joked about an error you made and shared uh, to, to give your audience an explanation. What's the value in sharing information? Oh, man. Um, I guess for me, it, I've looked back over my career in the trades and you look and this really applies to everybody look at how hard it is for us to come up through the trades and acquire the knowledge and skills that we need to actually be able to earn a decent living in the trades. And I feel like we are just reinventing the wheel over and over again with each person. Uh, you tell a young guy, hey, come into the trades. All right, well, let's just say with the example of finished carpentry, how is that young guy gonna acquire the skills? He's going to get thrown out onto a job site. There's no formal training. And there's probably a couple older guys, maybe that he's supposed to learn from. Most of the time, those older guys aren't going to be very forthright and wanting to teach and share, share things because either they don't have time, that's not their personality, um, or they might feel threatened by the younger guy. I experienced that in my career. Um, so it's a really hard position for young people to come into the trades and get up and running to where they're making a respectable living right away. So for me, part of why I have a, a strong desire to teach people is because I went through that. And I think it's ridiculous that we, we have to go through that and that there isn't more information available. So that's, that's on a personal aspect. But then as a business owner, I looked at where I was at in my business and what it took to hire employees. And, and basically what I was seeing was I was going to basically be jumping on this hamster wheel where, okay, I hire a guy and now I spend however many years teaching this young guy the skills that it takes to, to be productive odds are there's a high probability that eventually that guy will go on and start his own business, which is awesome. That's perfectly fine. We, we all, you know, should have that avenue open to us, but well, now I've got this problem as a business owner that I'm just repeating this cycle over and over again, train a guy, odds are he, he moves on. Maybe he even goes down a different career path, whatever it is, but basically my life turns into just teaching people and losing them. And so mm -hmm. for me, with my YouTube channel, I thought there's got to be a better way as an industry to train people and teach people. Why don't I put this stuff into lessons where it's consumable and for the masses? And, and once you do it once, that lesson is there. So whenever I started the YouTube channel, I wanted to teach everybody, but even in the back of my mind, I had the idea that for myself, I could even use that 
for my own potential employees um, where that training is, it's right there. Um, hey, you wanna learn all the techniques for installing baseboard? Watch these videos. You wanna learn how to set a door? Watch these videos, so on and so forth. So to me, if that training is available, ready, av readily available to anyone, it's gonna make it much easier for somebody to get up to speed and be productive faster because you're showing them the path, you're showing them the standardized processes that, that I've had to learn the hard way and countless people before me had to learn the hard way and we're really getting people up to speed a lot faster. So that's a really long answer, but um, that's kind of the mindset behind what I'm doing with Insider Carpentry. It's part of this movement of moving past secrecy, right? Yeah, it, it hasn't hurt me one bit to, to be open and share. And I think anybody that you ask who, who openly shares their trade knowledge will say it hasn't hurt them at all. And what actually happens is it makes you a lot better because you develop relationships with other skilled tradesmen and, and you're building each other up. You know, so, I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am if I would have had uh, the scarcity mindset. Um, I look at it, there's two different mindsets. There's an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset says I have to protect everything and I can't, uh, for me to prosper, somebody else has to not prosper. And, and the abundance mindset says I can share everything and we can all prosper, you know? The other thing about sharing knowledge is that when other people see you doing it, for instance, in your community, they know that when they hire you or when you're doing work on their home, you are confident and you've put yourself out there. Why wouldn't they hire you over someone else? You know what I mean? That, that you're confident enough to put what you know online for free. Yeah. That's one of the, uh, the unexpected side effects of what I've done with the social mm. media is uh, before I had a large social media presence, I was just, you know, a guy on the job site. And if a homeowner, if I'm making a suggestion to a homeowner several years ago, they were kind of questioning me and, and not sure, you know, is this, is this does this guy know what he's doing mm. or not? And now... <laughs> If I may make a suggestion, it, it carries a lot of weight and there's rapport and trust with that, where I find mm -hmm. my job's actually a lot easier because um, I've built that kind of trust and reputation with it that I usually don't get much pushback um, whenever I'm trying to make, make a suggestion or, or go a different direction. Now, you mentioned uh, that if you brought people on, you'd be able to say, Hey, look at these videos. Will you hire people? You know, I mean, yeah. So I started on Instagram, I don't know, five, six years ago, and I've been making YouTube videos for, I guess in three and a half years. And over the course of that period of time, I've really grown to understand kind of my calling in life. Uh, I love teaching and I love creating content. So I've, I've gotten myself to, to a place with the content creation and my business where I honestly do not see myself 
hiring uh, mm. anytime in the future. P potentially, I could see myself if I get to the point where I need um, a little bit more manpower, I would maybe team up with another subcontractor on, on certain larger jobs. I'd, I'd be more open to that because I am also getting close to 10 years in, into business. My desire to do the 70 hour a week grind on these big jobs is less and less. So, you know, may, maybe teaming up in the future might be an option, but as far as the having guys where I need to have something, something for them to do every day, that doesn't interest me very much. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I experienced on a whole nother level of, with self-employment when it set in was stress. So how do you deal with stress? Um, so I pay a lot of attention, a lot of attention to margin in my life and you know, basically, you know, we think of margin in business as the financial margin you have. It's the space that you have in your business, that extra money. But margin really applies to your finances, your time, um, your 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 mental capacity to take on more, and and especially being a content creator and a carpenter, you know. A lot of people don't really, I think, realize it, but I'm, I'm trimming these huge houses by myself and I'm also creating content at the same time while I'm doing that. So it's like multiple, multiple full-time jobs at once. So in order to manage that, I've had to create space in my life to be able to do that. So I, I tend to go in kind of sprints where I'm on a big job and I go pretty hard at it, but then I give myself plenty of time in between those jobs to kind of decompress, mm. enjoy myself, um, catch up on all the other stuff that kind of falls by the wayside whenever I'm really focused on these big jobs. So that has been huge for managing stress. But uh, if I, we, we've all learned if, if we've, all those of us who have run businesses have suffered from saying yes too much. Um, you can overwhelm yourself and overcommit yourself really fast. So I say no to just about everything anymore. Uh, whenever it comes to taking on jobs, basically just take care of two or three builders. Um, and, uh, and even, you know, with the content creation too, there's, there's a whole world of, possibilities there and you just have to learn to say no and uh not overcommit yourself that that's the biggest thing for me for managing stress i feel that um that taking on too much work is almost like a stepping stone in building and, oh for sure and you <laughs> and, and like it's a stepping stone and simultaneously a pitfall because you you do it and you're like you see stuff and you're like oh man I can do that too. And, and you get into it and, but you find your personal limit. Right? Yeah. And then you find, you just find some limits out there and you either live that way or back off. And I like your style that you say you take some time between jobs, because I think that's really, really important to have some space and be able to come back to catching up. You do have all this other work to do. It's not just being on the site. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, 
I think that's something that people forget is that you take on all the work, but then you have to be on the job site 70 hours a week to do the work, but you also have to do the stuff at home, the yeah. stuff that you catch up on. And, and it's, it's important to realize that. And, and I think it's really important to space things out and leave gaps in your schedule because the other thing that happens is that jobs expand in scope. Yeah. Do they not? I mean, especially well, where at, at your end of things, you're finished, you know, you're finishing things. People either get cheap or they get, or they go big at the end. And then, yeah. And you know, probably the biggest thing, and you would know this as a builder, like if you want to talk about something that really adds to the stress is if you know, a builder house has a house that is ready for you and you cannot get there because you're mm. overcommitted somewhere else. I mean, that takes your stress level and drastically, drastically amplifies it. So that's been another thing. And I even kind of um, structured my business with my shop to where I could also be doing work at home as well. So I'll build built-ins, mantles, even some beams and stuff like that at home in my shop. That was another key thing in my business because it allowed me to be working, especially in those earlier years where I could continue I could have that income still coming in, but I was also close to my family as well. And uh, that, that really helped a lot too. And that's a, that's also a, another amazing um, thing we learn along the way is prefabbing things when you can. In the, if you can show up at the job site with a lot of things made, you save time. Why make it on site? Yeah. You know, what like, <clears throat> And no matter what trade you're in, you know, if you're, if you're a plumber, you can make all your manifolds, you can make you know, everything before you show up, click it in place, connect, let's go. And, and I see a lot of what you're doing on, on the YouTube channel and like, sure, you, you, you're in your shop making it, you show up, click it in later. Yep. What's your take on normalizing mental health? No, I think mental health is huge. Um, you know, at a base level, managing that stress that we experience in the business, that's kind of like step one. But then probably most of us have had things that have come along in life that have uh, been like getting hit by a bus from the side. And, and that's where you really have to learn to manage your mental health and, uh, and learn a lot about yourself. So for me, it's been huge to learn about my personality, to understand kind of my personality temperaments better and both the strengths and weaknesses of my personality, um, just to be more self-aware. I love people who, who can have kind of a wide understanding of, of those different subjects. And uh, that's helped me a lot as well, just to kind of stay stay grounded um mm -hmm. and stay open too because uh definitely as soon as you think you have it all figured out that's where the trouble usually starts it can start there uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right we've made it to the speed round best joke best joke oh my lands i don't think i've got one <laughs> that put me on the spot 
It puts you know, I follow an IG account that does nothing but dad jokes, but mm. uh, nothing's coming to mind. <laughs> I, I don't really remember many jokes. I, I love a good joke when I hear it, but I'm not good with remember the recall. Uh, how about your favorite tool? Favorite tool. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to go with, I'll just, I'll just say what Milwaukee's been coming out with, with the new pack out drawers and their, their cordless finish nailer lineup. The, those have been game changers lately. Okay. How about the most useful tool? Most useful tool, uh, Collins coping foot. <laughs> There's so many. That's hard. That's a hard question. The, where have you been all my life tool? The where have you? Uh, that would definitely be the new Milwaukee 23 gauge pin nailer. Cordless. Uh, I've never asked this question before, but I see a lot of books on your shelf. What what you got a book recommendation for us? Oh, man. Um, I just did a YouTube video with it's called 10 books that changed my life. So I'd say yeah. if the listeners want to know. Uh, 10 books that changed my life. Check out my YouTube channel and uh, those 10 books. Best job site snack. Best job site snack. Uh, jerky. That's probably going to be my go-to. Third week in a row, it's been jerky. <laughs> you and Ryan Smith and Eric Ruggiero. Uh, okay, best job site jams. Best job site jams. Um, I listen to just about anything and everything that's got a beat whenever I want to uh, get stuff done. So I I'm a variety guy, nothing in particular. Just turn it up and working alone. Yep. Yeah. Working alone is pretty fun when you get the jams going and you're just like in the, in the, in the zone. It's probably my favorite thing about working alone is listening to, I listen to probably podcasts half the time, mm -hmm. uh, but then there's then a quarter of the time, probably music. Is there anyone out there you want to give a shout out to today? I would say just the, the trade community as a whole, um, starting a YouTube channel that was a big undertaking. And uh, there have been just a, a huge outpouring of support you know, in that effort, um, people who share the videos that I make, people who, you know, send encouraging DMs, comments, um, just the community as a whole. It's it's an easy group of people to serve and create content for. You guys, you've been listening to Spencer Lewis today. And you can find Spencer's stuff at Insider Carpentry on IG and Insider Carpentry channel on youtube thanks so much for being here today man i really appreciate it yeah no it was good thanks for listening today everyone today's shout out goes to tim coin who's a nail bender out in flagstaff right now tim wrote me a while back and said hey i really love the show and i'm trying to absorb as much information as i can well that's what we're here for so you're welcome but i also want to thank you and everyone else who has written me and given me feedback because you have all helped shape the show for the last two seasons. The feedback, the comments on posts, the emails, I appreciate it all so much. 
And I appreciate my guests who came on and shared, volunteered their time to tell us what they're up to and what they've learned. Though I am going on a hiatus, seasons three and four are in the planning process. And again, a lot of that is due to the feedback I've been getting from you all. The book is in the works. I'm laying this podcast down to work on the book and build some houses. So that's it. I'm going to be checking out. But you will find me lurking on Instagram at The Contracting Handbook. All right. That's all I got.